they're recording these things. At least they're attempting this, because a lot of people have been asking for copies of this lesson uh, that we're doing this week. So as you can see, we're doing uh, spiritual boot camp, and today, as I told you, we're going to be doing a thing called, Is This War Relevant? How many of you have actually heard someone say to you at some time that you can't trust the Bible because science has disproved the Bible? Has anybody ever heard that? Yeah, I've heard that a lot too. I'm a former scientist. I'm a former science teacher. And so I hear this quite often. And wow, um, if you believe that, I'm just going to ask you to have an open mind for the next 45 minutes because I want to show you some stuff that's just going to blow that out of the water. But as we look at this, is this more relevant? Like I say, we're going into um, spiritual boot camp. When you go into boot camp, you go into the military or whatever, they train you to take part of the war, take part of fighting, so that you can go into harm's way and you don't get killed. That's the, high, the idea here. And so that's what we're sort of hoping to do here, too with you, is that you will be able to take on some of this, this combat. Now, a lot of people, I know, a lot of people have said, well, I've already had the armor of God thing in Ephesians. I'm sure, I'm, just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you have had a lesson on the armor of God. I bet about every hand's gonna go up. Yeah, just about every single one. Not all, but almost all. It is a very common topic, and also is what I'm going to show you this week, too, in the last three days in particular, a lot of times it's actually taught, in some cases, incorrectly. They take things out of context, and I'm going to show you how to avoid doing that um, as we go through this also. But I'm going to start with prayer. We're going to get into this then. Is this war relevant? Because if we can't answer this question, if the Bible's not real, if there's no sense in, in the Bible being real, ugh, we're just wasting our time here. So what is there that we can see as support that the Bible is real, that this war is really relevant? And so to start off with, let's open in prayer, then we'll get into this. Father, we thank you so much for this day, and we ask that you would just bless us. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit, which does the teaching, that your Spirit would just move among us, open up our hearts and our minds to see things clearly, we ask. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was writing this series back in this past winter, I came across this statistic that really shocked me. Atheistic religion in the U.S. is on the rise. It has actually doubled from 5 million in 2007 to over 10 million in 2016. Now, it's from the Pew Research, April of 2016. I read that, I was like, wow. Now, first of all, do you guys understand the difference between atheism and like an atheist and an agnostic. When I was your age, I didn't know the difference. So maybe there's one person, I see a lot of people nodding, yeah, I know what that is. Maybe there's one person that doesn't, so let me explain it very simply. An atheist is a person who says, there is no God, period. End of discussion, end of point, and no matter what you try and throw in front of me, I am not going to believe it because I already came to this conclusion, there is no God. That's an atheist. An agnostic is different. An agnostic is someone who says, I don't know if there's a God or not. Generally, an agnostic is more open-minded to at least look at things and see what it is. I will say this about atheists, though. I admire them for their faith because, and yes, an atheist has faith. Don't, don't let them tell you an atheist doesn't have faith. Boy, they got faith because no matter how much light you shine on them, they still refuse to see. No matter how much evidence I put in front of them, they still refuse to acknowledge anything. They are so, I'm not even going to look at that. I'm not even going to consider that because I believe what I believe, that there is no God. That's an atheist. I'll tell you, that is a strong faith. 
Actually, in a way, I wish Christians had such a strong faith that they would just like, I don't care what anybody shows, I'm going to be this way. But um, anyway, why this drastic change here? This is amazing. And i got to tell you a story here. Back a few years ago, I was asked by, I got called up one winter. My office is right on the other side of that door. I got called here at, in the um, at Fort Wilderness by a major university's atheist club. They called me up. Now, when they called me, I was like, you're who? And you're, why are you calling me? And they said that, well, we, we have heard about you, which right there scared me. We've heard about you because we have heard that you used to be a Darwinian evolutionist, and now you are this creationist guy, and that you worked as a scientist, and we're just really puzzled. Why, do you, why did you switch? Would you please, are you ready for this? Would you please come and talk to our student body? I said, how many people do you have in your club? They said about 200. I was like, whoa, gee, it's huge. Of course, this is a major university. Question? Oh. So they, they asked me if I would do that, and I was like, okay, you guys are probably going to want me to come so you can make fun of me, right? Yeah, that's why you want me to be, be there, so you can just ridicule. And they said, no, 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 really. We, we just want to know why, what you believe, what you believe. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, they're not telling me something. Why do you guys want me to come? And I said, would you please come? Because we'll pay all your expenses. Two nights, you get to speak for two hours each night. We really want you to come. To and I'm like, why are you guys picking on me and stuff? Finally, they told me. The guy says, okay, this is what's going on. We have challenged the Christian organizations on our campus. That would be like crew, uh, intervarsity, you know, uh, navigators. We've challenged them to a debate on whether there is a God or not. And I go, okay. We started thinking, after they accepted the challenge, we're wondering, what kind of questions are they going to ask us? What are they going to throw at us? We have no idea, because we're atheists. So we got the idea of having you come talk to us so that we could at least get some ammunition of what to, to fight against them. And I go, okay. Now I get it. So I said, if that's what you're after, sure, I would be glad to come and speak to you guys. And I did. And it was fascinating, because when I got there, the first thing I told them on the very first night, the very first lesson, I stood up in front of all these atheists, and I said, let me tell you right now, no one can scientifically, scientifically prove the existence of God. And they all like, yeah, et cetera, and they're all like, yeah. and I was like, after I calmed down, I said, now, let me tell you my second fact. You cannot scientifically prove there is not a God, which then you could hear crickets going, you know, in the room. It was so silent at that point. And then I proceeded to show them through logic um, about evidence that there is a God. And after this was over, you see, you can't go to an atheist and start just showing them stuff right out of the Bible. You don't believe in God? Well, look at this verse here. You can't do that because an atheist doesn't believe in this. So what I had to do was to show them, first of all, evidence that this is real. Then what I did is I used logic, just logic, to promote this. And at the end of the thing, what fascinated me was the guy who called me up actually said to me, he says, you know, I think we're going to have to change the name of our organization from the Atheist Club to the Agnostic Club because you've thrown stuff at us we never heard of and we don't know how to refute it. So we're not sure now. There was a few diehards that remained atheists no matter what. But atheism is on a rise and it's really strange Considering, and, and a lot of it is because there's so much misinformation being shuttled out there, particularly to high school students.
that science has disproved the Bible and all this kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> there's a problem with that. And before I really get any further, I want to tell you another story. Yeah, we are actually going to get into a lesson, but I'm trying to get you, for one, I'm trying to get you to wake up since you're not drinking tea. And second is I'm trying to get you to understand a few things first. A couple of years ago, I got a phone call in the wintertime from a woman who um, is a mother who comes to family camp. She called me up and she says, Michael, I need your help. Now, this was sort of in the evening. And I said, so, oh, you know, what's up? What can I help you with? And she says, my son, who has um, always been going to church and everything like that, my son just threw his Bible in the trash can here in, at home. And when I questioned him about it, he said that he no longer believes in the Bible, that science is his new God. And she says, I don't know how to respond to this, and what should I do? Would you please talk to him? I said, he's not going to want to talk to me unless he wants to talk to me. Because anything I say, if you put him on the phone, he's not going to want to listen to me unless he wants to. But she goes, well, what do I do? How do I handle this? What do I do to him and everything? I said, well, I said, the one thing you can do is explain to him that science can't explain everything. And to be honest, can you really think of a, of a God, science being a God here, lowercase g, can you think of a God that makes more mistakes or has to constantly keep changing to keep up with the times than science? I used to be a science teacher. I have hordes of books sitting here, biology books, because that's the subject I used to teach. You know, I could pick up any one of those books today and show you a scientific error in it because science is constantly discovering new things. I taught in a school that we had to change science textbooks at the, at the most, every, or sorry, at the least, every five years, we had to change textbooks because there's errors in the textbook. Scientific discoveries keep coming up and new things happening. For instance, um, I, I bet everybody will know the answer to this. What is the molecule in your body that controls heredity? Anyone? That's not a hard question. I know it's summertime. You're not supposed to think science things, right? Okay. What is the molecule? Everybody knows it. The heredity molecule. I'll give you a hint. Three letters, it's its abbreviation. DNA. DNA, yes, we can breathe and we can talk. Yes, DNA. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is the heredity molecule. But do you know that back in the 1920s, there was a lot of science, a lot of scientists who thought that it was lipids, fat molecules that controlled it? There was another group of scientists who said it was proteins that were doing it, not DNA. We knew about DNA. We didn't know what DNA did. And we thought that all that information could not be stored on something could only store on four letters. If you study DNA, you know, adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine, that four, four base pairs, four letters, that you could build everything from just four letters. They, they said it's not really possible. So they thought lipids, lipids are huge molecules, proteins are huge molecules, and they thought, oh, that's got to be it. And you can find some of that in science textbooks if you go back far enough, because there's all these things that science will declare and then find out they're wrong. And they have to keep changing. So I tried to tell her, if you can get your son to understand that science is a, a forever morphing, meaning changing, God, what kind of, who wants to have a God like that? And besides, science can't answer everything. Let me show you um, about this. This is 
the use that, that God is science, science is a God, that's scientism. That's what that's called. Yes, there is a term for that. And today, a lot of teens in particular believe that scientism has eliminated the need for God, that science can provide you all of the answers that you ever need. You got a problem? Just go to science. Science will find the answer. Really? Well, there's a great book that was put out just recently by Dr. John C. Lennox called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Now, this is a brilliant scientist, and he puts um, in this book, he, he uses a parable, a story, but in this, um, he poses a hypothetical problem to 10 Nobel laureates, 10 Nobel Prize winners. Now, to win a Nobel Prize, you understand, in science, that generally means you're pretty smart. You know, they just don't hand those out. And so scientists uh, who won Nobel Prizes, he puts this parable type of story out. Now, I'm just going to pull it right out of his book here and let you see what he does to show you that science can't answer everything, that science is not a very good God. And that's what this is about. So here's the story. A lady named Matilda bakes a beautiful cake and prevents, uh, presents it to the laureates. She tells them to tell the people about the cake. Now, they analyze the cake. And the biochemists in the group tell the people the molecular composition of the cake. The chemists in the group explain its elements. The physicists in the group describe the elementary particles of the cake. They have all now given us the best information available. But now they are all asked one question. Why did she make it? The scientists can tell us what it's made of, but they cannot tell us why she made the cake. Unless she reveals it to them, they will never know. Even the physical examining of her brain will not reveal the answer. Unless she reveals the answer, nobody's ever going to know. Science can't answer that question. What's the point of this cake illustration? When she reveals it to us, that does not mean that we shut off our rationality. Instead, we must use our rationality to understand what she said. In other words, what's going on here is that people will say, oh, you people who believe in God and stuff like this, you're not using rational thinking. Really? No, I think we are using rational thinking. I think it's people who are closed-minded are making a statement like that. Science cannot answer many aspects of the universe, just like in this cake thing. Science can't answer everything. Science cannot give us the questions, the answers to the questions like, why am I here? How can science provide that answer? They can't. What is my purpose in living? Science cannot give an answer to that. Where did all the life come from? Science thinks they can answer that, but if you follow this, they keep changing this constantly. It's thus they can't answer this one either because they are always changing their answer because new discoveries coming up. Science can't answer certain things. And that's what I tried to get this lady to understand about her son. Explain to him science is not a very good God. Science is constantly morphing, constantly changing. It's a terrible example of a God. Constantly morphing, constantly changing. But there is someone who has given us the revelation of why Matilda made the cake, why we exist, why we are here, what is our purpose in living, and where did life come from? And I'll tell you, we do have the answer, and we don't have to shut off our rational thinking, because the answer is in here. 
in the Bible. Do you understand what this thing is? This is not an ordinary book. This is 66 love letters written by a God to us, revealing himself to us, and he pours out his heart and emotion in here so that we get to know him better. This week, we're going to see a lot about this book. It's not a normal book. God has spoken. He gives us the answers. Now, of course, we have this phrase that people always use, science disproved the Bible. Science disproved the Bible. Oh, come on. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And I love when people come up to me and tell me this. And they'll say, Michael, you can't say that because science disproves the Bible. You can't use the Bible, Michael. Science disproved the Bible. And I love when people come up to me because then I ask them certain questions and they're like, huh? What? I didn't know that. Uh huh. Let me show you some things here real quick. In the time we have left this morning, I want to show you science supporting the Bible, not disproving it, maybe disagreeing with it for centuries, but then finally coming around and saying, you know, something the Bible was right. Let me show you some things. If you've ever looked for any type of evidence that the Bible is real, I wish I could do, I wish I could have you guys for about a month. I could do, literally, if you let me speak for an hour every single day for a month, I could still keep going on. I have so much material on this to show you how science supports the Bible. It's, it's amazing. It really is. I'm just going to take, in the few minutes we have here, five branches of science. Archaeology, um, astronomy, meteorology, medicine, and oceanography. And I'm going to show you these things. And we're going to take a look at these just briefly. Like I say, there's more I could show you on each one of these, and plus there's other branches of science. I could get into geology. I could get into human anatomy physiology. There's a bunch of different sciences I could go to showing science things from the Bible that are actually true. Now, please understand, I'm not saying the Bible is a science textbook. No, it's not. But it's written by a God who created science, and the thing is, and the laws of science, so if he said something is scientifically in here, any scientific fact, it's going to be true. Let's take a look at this. Archaeology. Do you know that there has never been a provable archaeological discovery that disproved the Bible? Not one. I just led a tour um, eight weeks ago. I was in Israel leading an archaeological tour. And I took people to about 48 different sites and artifacts, um, showing them actually more, more than that. But I showed them evidence at each one of these that the Bible is real, that it's true. I mean, I could just stand here, and you probably have had somebody in a Sunday school class or something like that stand up to you and say, oh, this is true. you got to believe this. Why? What evidence is there? So that's the way my mind works. I'm a scientist myself. I would ask that kind of question. Give me a reason to believe this. Give me evidence to support it. Well, the thing is, there is a lot out there. In archaeology, when someone comes up to me and says, science has disproved the Bible, I almost always go to this. I said, have you ever heard of a science called archaeology? Well, of course, they said, yeah. I said, do you know that there has never been an archaeological discovery that goes against the Bible, a provable archaeological discovery? Not one. Yet, there are tens of thousands that have actually supported the Bible? And if you think I'm making that up, I'm not. That's what my tour that I just did in Israel is, and that's why I'm even writing a book on it. Here's the manuscript. Hope, God willing, it's going to be published before Christmas. Um, archaeological evidence of the Bible, that it's true, that these things really happen. That's the manuscript just there. 
And I could add more chapters, it just ran out of time. I'm having to I'll make a second volume when I get this one done. Did you guys know that there's that much science actually supporting the Bible? Let me show you a couple things real quick. Artifacts proving that over 75 biblical characters have been discovered. Actually, that number is up from when I wrote this this past winter. Another was just recently discovered in Jerusalem, a seal with the name of King Hezekiah on it. King Hezekiah is in, like in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. You read about King Hezekiah. And there's other things that have been found. Other artifacts with the names like David, Goliath, Jezebel, Ahab, Omri, Baruch, Ahaz, Manasseh, Caiaphas, and Peter, and more and more. I even took people into um, to Capernaum where Peter's house was. Did you even know that archaeologists have found Peter, the disciple, Peter's actual house? There's hardly anybody even questions that. This is definitely Peter's house. True. It's amazing what archaeology has found. It's, it's amazing to me how many people know very little about this. Thus the reason for me putting out a book on this. Things like these, little bullas or stamps, official seals of kings like King Hezekiah. How about this one, Caiaphas? That's a bone box, an ossuary. In the 1990s, they found this by accident. They were building a project, a water park. They found a hole. They can't, actually, they found a cave. What this cave was was a first century A.D., time of Christ, burial tomb, and it was Caiaphas, the same Caiaphas in the Bible that sentenced Jesus to death, the high priest. We know it's Caiaphas from the Bible because it actually has his name on the ossuary. And not only that, his skeleton was still in it. The skeleton has been uh, taken out. It was privately buried on the Mount of Olives. This artifact here is sitting in Israel Museum to this day. And it's an actual photograph I took of the, of the real thing. Or how about this one? Here's a piece of broken water pottery. It's got some writing on it. That writing is not Hebrew. It's Philistine. It was found in the city of Gath. It dates back, you can date from the style of the writing, that's one way of dating something, but also the style of the pottery, how thick it is and how the pottery is made. The pottery shows that it came, it was made around 1100 to 1000 BC in the city of Gath. But the thing is, there's a name on here, and that name is actually Goliath. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 17, you read about Goliath, the same guy that David fought, and you'll read that he lived in Gath at that same time period. Now, whether that is actually the Goliath from the Bible or not, no one can prove. It seems awful coincidental that that pot was sitting in Gath, where he was from, and from the time period that this guy lived. Or how about Queen Jezebel in the Bible? We know this is Queen Jezebel's because it's got her name on it. It has the four Hebrew letters making up Jezebel right here. It has a winged um, Phoenician princess symbol. She was the princess of Phoenicia, the Bible says. She was also, this is the royal seal of uh, the Hebrews, and has that seal on it also. That means that she was a queen in Israel. All these things on here, the little lotus here indicates that it is a female of royalty. The two cobras here indicate royalty also. It has all these things. Yet it has her name on it. There's no God, nobody questions. This is Jezebel. And they found her husband, King Ahab's signet ring. And David, they found King David's name on multiple places now. This was the first one. It was found in a block up north of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Dan where the, the uh, Syrians were fighting against the house of David. And it talks about that they defeated the house of David. And that's right on there. Oh, we could show you so much more. How about going to the city of Jericho? We all know the story of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Walls came tumbling down. If you remember how that story goes, Joshua was bringing the people into the promised land. 
It says in the Bible that the city was conquered at the time of the harvest. All the harvest was taken into the city, and the city was not starved to death. It was conquered in an unconventional means, and the walls came down, and then the Israelites went in and burned the entire city. Well, if you stand there, like I'm standing here taking this picture, this out here is a rampart wall. There is a second one back behind here. Jericho didn't have one wall, had two. The Bible doesn't say that, but the Bible doesn't say it didn't have two walls. It just says the walls fell down, and, which is plural also. Um, anyway, there was been uh, mud bricks up on top of each one of these things, about 15 to 20 feet high on top of these ramparts. That's the part. These are the foundations of the wall. The walls themselves have fallen out. They fell outward. Um, there's a street in between these two ramparts here with houses built into it. Here is a tower built right into this wall here. Um, and the thing is, back in uh, 1930s, an archaeologist, a British archaeologist named Garstang, found these walls all with the stones falling outward, just as the Bible says. He even found on the opposite side of where I took this picture, there are sections of the wall that did not fall. If you recall the story with Rahab, her house was built into the wall. Her house did not fall. The wall did not fall there. There's a section in that area, and that was, we know also, from judging by the pottery that was found there, to be a low-rent area, well, probably where you would find a prostitute running a bar and an inn. That was probably the right spot. Um, but then in the 1950s, Kathleen Kenyon, another archaeologist, found the same thing, that these walls, most of these walls fell. They fell outward. Not only that, the city was burned. And in the 1990s, an uh, archaeologist named Bryant Wood went here and looked at it some more and found all sorts of evidence that this city had the walls that fell outward and that it was burned. Let me show you this picture here. I'm going to turn off the light so you can see this image here a little bit better. This image here is showing, this is a trench that was dug in the 1950s by Kathleen Kenyon. And you'll see this large white layer here. It's over a meter thick. It's, it's very thick. This is white ash. Notice the black carbon stains around here also. There's a lot of carbon. This indicates the city was burned. Did you know that they also found Garstang in the 1930s and Bryant Wood in 1997 found clay pots, large clay pots, about four feet high, um, about two and a half foot, three foot in diameter, full of grain that was burned? Hundreds of these pots indicating that the city was conquered right after the harvest, just as the Bible says, and it was burnt, just as the Bible says. Pottery indicating there, also Dr. Bryant Wood studied the pottery, and the pottery came out to be around 1405 B.C., which according to 1 Kings chapter 6, makes it right about the right time that the Bible said this city was conquered. Wow. Or Hazor, another city that was conquered by Joshua. This is up um, in the the area north of the Sea of Galilee. This is a phenomenal place right here. This is a temple, a Canaanite temple. There's a platform you can see here. Joshua conquered this city, and this is another one of the cities. Joshua only burned three cities in the conquest. He burned the city of Jericho first, he burned the city of Hazor, and he burned the city of Ai. Um, Ai is being excavated just in these last few years, and they're finding evidence of burning there also. But other cities, the Israelites just went in and moved into. But this was one, this was the capital. Hetzor was the capital of Canaan when Joshua brought the Israelites in there. It was a multicultural city. There was Egyptians, there were Hittites, there was Chaldeans, everybody living there. It was a huge city. And they all had all their gods there too. What you're looking at right here is a temple, a Canaanite temple that has been destroyed and it's been burned. 
This is inside the palace. I took people right inside the palace, showing you basalt stones that are all cracked. Basalt is an igneous rock. Igneous fire rock, like a volcanic type of rock. Yet making it crack like this, why would basalt crack like that? It takes intense heat. This is evidence, scientific evidence, that this city was burned exactly as the Bible claimed. There's clay pots in there that melted together. The flames were so intense. This city was burned, no question about it. Or how about going to the city of Megiddo? In the Bible, Megiddo was a place... Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you this about Hetzor. This is fascinating. Some people say it was the Egyptians who destroyed Hetzor. The Bible says it was the Hebrew. What is fascinating is this. All of these nations all had people living of all these different cultures in Hetzor. And they found idols. There was an Egyptian sphinx in Hetzor that they found. Mutilated. Gods like Baal and stuff, mutilated. All these idols were mutilated. The head would cut off, the hands and the feet cut off. Uh, that's not by accident. That's deliberate mutilization of an idol. That's the way that they used to do stuff back then. Now tell me, as some critics would say, it was the Egyptians who destroyed Hetzor. city was burned. There's no question about it. Well, it must have been the Egyptians. Really? Why would Egyptians destroy their own gods? They wouldn't. Yet every culture, every single idol that they found, uh, all the different type of idols that they found there were all decapitated, hands and feet cut off. What nation would possibly do that? There's only one, the Hebrew nation, because God told them in the book of Deuteronomy to do precisely that. It all fits perfectly. Here's Megiddo, a city that was also a Canaanite city for a long time. Solomon, it says in the Bible, took this city and made, it says, made a massive stable. It sits right on a huge plain, the Jezreel Valley. It's a massive plain where many battles were fought. Solomon knew the strategic importance of this, and he puts his chariots and horses there. This is actually one of the stables. It's described in the Bible. There it is. You're looking at the thing right now. It was also a place of Canaanite worship. This is a high place that was a place of Canaanite worship at Megiddo. The stables are back over here. There's a stable right there. Actually, there's more than one stable here. It was such a huge place. Or Tel Dan. Tel Dan is where King Jeroboam rebelled against King Rehoboam, and who was a ancestor, uh, the son of Solomon, and he split the country, he led a coup. It says in the book of 1 Kings, and he comes up here and he builds an idol and a temple up here to Baal, and he makes a high place. And up here there's a large platform right here where there would have been an idol of Baal placed right here where they would do infant sacrifices and stuff, right in this area here. It's described in the Bible. There is the exact building dating back without any question to Jeroboam I, exactly as is described in the Bible. Science has disproved the Bible? I think not. This is a gate at Tel Dan, an ancient Canaanite gate. It's all made of mud brick, but you'll see the doorway here. It says in the book of Genesis that this city existed. We know from the pottery here, this goes back to the time of Genesis. And it even talks about Abraham. Yes, the Abraham of the Bible visiting here. This is the gate he would have had to walk through. That was the gate entrance to the ancient city. The city was there, and Abraham would have walked through that. Or let's look at a different, I mean, I could go on. You want more on archaeology? I'm doing some different seminars this week on archaeology. I've got one going on tomorrow afternoon, 3.30, um, where I'm going to show you the house of the high priest, Caiaphas the high priest. I told you about his burial box. I'm going to take you inside his house. Did you even know it was discovered? 
I'm going to show you even the place where Jesus stood trial, where Peter denied Christ. What's written in the Bible fits perfectly with all this. I'm going to show you. It's fascinating to see this. But let's look at a different branch of science. How about astronomy? Do you know that for centuries, science used to say for centuries, until just recently, that you could, uh, you could measure the heavens. The heavens were not infinite. or you know, There was a limit to how far it could go. Egyptians and other nations thought that you could climb high enough mountains, you could get up and touch the sky. Well, yeah, right. Um, it says, though, in the book of Jeremiah, in 31, 37, if only the heavens above can be measured. God was telling us, contrary to what popular science was saying, the heavens cannot be measured. That's what that says. If only the heavens above can be measured, but it can't. We know this is true today because we've placed a thing up in space called the Hubble Space Telescope. No matter where they place that, they can see there's more galaxies out there. It just keeps expanding. The universe is getting bigger. It is not measureless. Or how about this one? In Jeremiah 33, 32, it says, Countless as the stars of the sky. God is telling us in this verse, you cannot count the number of stars. Yet for centuries, for more than 10 centuries, scientists said, we know how many stars there are. There was a guy um, around 140 A.D., his name was Ptolemy, who went out one night to find out how many stars there was. Uh, there were. He, I guess he went and got a bucket of chicken, laid down a blanket in his backyard, and just started counting. And he counted, it was something like, I don't remember exactly, it was something like 2,016 stars. And so that was what was published. And science used that number for centuries. You're sitting in a class at Oxford or in Vienna, and they ask you the question, how many stars are there? You would say, well, there's 2016, because that's what Ptolemy counted, and that's what we know in science to be true. And you would get it right on the paper. Then finally, a guy named Copernicus comes along, and he says, you know something? I bet Ptolemy double-counted some of those. I think we should recount them. So I don't know, he got takeout food or something like that, laid down in his backyard on a blanket, and one night he counted the stars and came up with about 12 short. He says, yeah, I think Ptolemy double-counted a couple of them. So now the number changed again. That number was around for a long time, hundreds of years, until finally we put that Hubble telescope up here, and now we know that you can't count the stars. There's too many of them, which is exactly what the Bible says. Or how about this one in 1 Corinthians 15, 41? The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, star differs from star, from, uh, uh, stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Star differs from star. That means there's different types of stars. Yet, science taught, astronomy taught for centuries the Bible's wrong, that there's only one type of star. You'd be sitting in class and you might ask the question, well, professor, please tell me, why is Betelgeus um, bright red and Alter Baron bright yellow and Rigel sort of blue and, and Sirius blue? Why, why do we have the different colors if all the stars are exactly the same? And your professor would say, um, well, we don't know exactly, but we know that they're all the same. So please just put that down on your, on your sheets. Well, it goes totally against what the Bible says. Now, today, if you pick up a geology book, earth science book, astronomy book, you will see that we categorize stars because of composition, their size, their heat. I mean, there's all different categories that we have for classifying stars. Exactly as the Bible says, star differs from star. There are so many different types of stars. Let's look at another one. I'll tell you, if you ever have to do a science project, particularly if you're homeschooled, you want a good science project to do sometime, do the, the history of the water cycle. I mean, get ready for some laughs for what science taught. It was the most ridiculous thing you ever heard of in your life. Do you know the science used to teach that if you walk down the sidewalk after a rainstorm and you see on the stone sidewalk puddles, and then you go into a building and come back out a couple hours later and the water's gone in the puddles, science used to teach that the water just ceases to exist now? 
They used to teach that. You would ask a question, where does the rain come from? They had the most bizarre answers for it. Where does the snow come from? They had bizarre answers for it. I'm you, it's, it, was, it was crazy. Yet the Bible describes the hydrologic cycle or the water cycle so precisely that when I was teaching earth science many years ago for a science class, I said, put the book aside. I'm going to show you something fascinating. And I got a Bible out and I just showed them out of an ancient text how all of this stuff fits perfectly. Let me just show you a few verses on this. In Isaiah 55:10, it says, For as rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. Now, what does that say? Rain and snow, precipitation, come down, yes. But what does it say then? Do not return. There's a cycle here. You see that? That was contrary to every scientific theory on this for centuries. Yet the Bible had it right. Today we know this is it. Or look at this verse, Job 36, 27, 28. This is a great passage for the water cycle. He draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Now, first of all, the book of Job is the oldest book in existence. In all of literary history, it's the oldest book. Yet this is perfectly describing the water cycle. Even using the word distill, his mist. It's evaporation. He draws up water. Water is evaporating, coming up. That's what happened to the water, though science missed this for centuries. And, and it comes back in rain, and it pours down on mankind, and it goes back up. You've got the whole water cycle right here. There are more and more verses on the water cycle. God specifically talks about this one in his word. I don't know why. He so much describes this one as opposed to other cycles, but boy, he really liked this one. Or let's take a look at a field I love. I love marine science. I'm the guy who does the marine biology trip here at Fort. Besides the Israel trip, I do the marine biology trip. And um, oceanography. Look at this verse here, Psalm 8.8. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now you just look at this verse, you probably wouldn't catch anything out of it. But I want you to go back in time into the early, or just before the American Civil War. There was a guy by the name of Matthew Morey. He was a captain in the United States Navy. He was a Christian. A guy who believed his Bible and he studied his Bible like every day. This guy was so in love with God and so in love with the Word of God, he constantly studied it. One day as he was studying his Bible, he came across this verse and he saw, it's talking about fish of the sea and things passing in the fish the paths of the sea. He thought paths of the sea sounds like ocean currents. Now, at that time, in the 1800s, they only knew of a couple of ocean currents along the east coast of some of the continents, like the Gulf Stream, which Benjamin Franklin discovered. Well, he says, this is talking about out in the ocean being currents. Science taught that out in the ocean, there were not currents. And down in the water, there were no currents. There's no currents on, down in the water. The water is very still, they said. That's what science taught for centuries. He says, but the Bible says that there's currents, that there's paths in the sea that fish swim in, that there's got to be current. So convinced was he that Matthew Murray went to the Navy board and asked for a ship and a mission to go out and explore the oceans all over the world looking for ocean currents. What he did, and they granted to him, he went out and he made the first map ever of the ocean currents. 
How did he discover it? By reading his Bible. It was totally against science, but he found out it was true. Today, he's the father of modern oceanography. You ever study oceanography? You'll study Matthew Murray. He made quite a few discoveries. Amazingly, almost all of them he got from reading his Bible. Job 38.16 says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Springs of the sea? Science used to teach for a long time, water is just in the ocean. It's just there. There's no springs feeding it from the bottom. There's nothing like that. It wasn't until just 1977. I remember when this took place because I was in college at the time. Dr. Robert Ballard discovered that, yes, there are springs in the sea, deep in the sea, exactly as the Bible says. You've all seen these things, these black smokers, deep sea thermal vents, as we call them in science. These things here, that's not smoke. That is extremely hot mineral water coming out at a higher temperature than even boiling. It's under high pressure because it's so deep. He found this off the coast of Chile. Today, they have found hundreds of these all over the world, some even in some freshwater lakes. True. One in Siberia. A lake in Siberia has some at the bottom of its lake. Thing is, it's exactly what the Bible said. Or going back to Matthew Morey, he was reading Jonah one day, and he came across in Jonah chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where it talks about Jonah being inside the great fish, going down to the belly, uh, or down to the bottom of the sea, to the root of the mountains, it says. The root of the mountains. For centuries, science taught and oceanography taught the ocean floor is totally flat. There's no mountains down there. It's totally flat. They called it the abyssal plain. Matthew Murray said, wait a minute, it's in the Bible. It's going to be true. He goes to the Navy board. They give him a ship. He goes out. He starts taking soundings, and he finds that there's all sorts of mountain ranges all over the seas, under the water, exactly as the Bible said. Well, let's go to medicine. Oh, I wish I, could, wish I could have you for a week on this one. This one just blows my mind. The Mosaic Health Code. The Mosaic Health Code is written, it was written by Moses. God told him in the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those because God told him to write this stuff down. This is around 1450 B.C. This is during the period of the Egyptians. But he puts together... They write, uh, Moses writes down a health code that is remarkable because it is so accurate even in this day. It can prevent diseases and all sorts of things even in this day. It was a perfect health code. This baffles doctors today. This is an amazing thing because it's the first health code ever recorded and it is absolutely perfect. They didn't even know what bacteria were. They wouldn't know that bacteria and viruses cause disease until just 150 years ago with Louis Pasteur, the French uh, scientist, who, by the way, was a Christian too, who read his Bible and studied his Bible all the time. Hmm, you never hear that about Pasteur. He was a great Bible scholar. Anyway, this thing is absolutely amazing. The health code written around 15, uh, 15, or 1450 B.C., you want to get rid of sexually transmitted diseases? Do what the health code does. You want to get rid of communicable diseases caused by bacteria and viruses? Do what the health code does. Um, you want to learn how to uh, have waste treatment for cities? It's in the health code. It tells you how to do that. Sterilization methods. You know that we still use the same sterilization methods today as outlined in there? I used to teach a class called microbiology. Microbiology studied bacteria. To sterilize loops and stuff, you pass them through a flame. That's in the health code. It's in there. It's amazing. Quarantine methods. How about this one? The quarantine was first described in the Mosaic Health Code. You've all heard of the Black Death. 
how it ravaged Europe in the 1300s, killed over a quarter of the people in Europe. Over a quarter of the people, the total population of Europe died from this. In just a few years, how did they stop it? Monks pulled out the Bible, went back to the Mosaic Health Code, found out how do we, what do we do? They read about quarantine, they quarantine, the plague stops. It's remarkable. It's in there also about how to prevent diseases, how to um, physical fitness. Why is it important? We write books on this today. People make careers about how physical fitness is good for you. You know, it goes back to Moses in 1450. Or how about nutrition? We study nutrition today. Do you know if you followed this? Do you know that if you follow scientific evidence that if you follow the Mosaic Health Code, you generally, unless you get hit by a car or some, you live longer. I was reading in Reader's Digest a couple of years ago about insurance policies in New York State. And they stated this, that in New York State, if you sign a paper with the insurance company that you follow the Mosaic Health Code, and there is a clause for that in New York, that if you follow the Mosaic Health Code, you get lower rates to pay because they know you're going to live longer. Because it has the proper nutrition. People today are making a market on this, writing all these nutrition books. The thing is, it goes back to 1450 BC. It's nothing new. They're just recycling the Mosaic Health Code. And there's so much more in here. It is remarkable. I, had, I was asked by a women's retreat a few years ago to do a, um, a weekend seminar on this. I, how do I do this whole thing in a weekend? I couldn't. It was just absolutely amazing how much is in the Mosaic Health Code. And it's all perfect even to this day. How did they get one so perfect when they didn't even know what causes diseases back then. How could they do it? It's because Moses didn't make it up. It came from God. There's no other explanation for this. There are so many bizarre things that we could go in. I wish I had time to show you more. But the thing is, what I'm trying to just, just in a, I'm giving you an hors d'oeuvre here today, the Bible is real. It is reliable. It does apply to your life. And when people try and tell you that science has disproved the Bible, I always ask them, show me. In most cases, they'll point me to one or two verses that they'll say, oh, here's an error in the Bible. The, one of the most common is in the Torah, where in the book of Leviticus, God is saying what birds you can eat. It says in most translations, these are the birds you're not allowed to eat. And it goes through a whole list, eagle, osprey, vulture, etc. And it gets down to the last one, it says the bat. And they'll say, ooh, science here, science here, science here. And it does appear to be a science here. Unless you go back to the original language. The original language in the Hebrew is not a list of birds. It says a list of flying animals you are not to eat. The word is oaf, flying animal, not bird. It's a mistranslation. The King James Version translated it as bird. Actually, it's supposed to be flying animal in the original text. Bat is a flying animal. Science errors? No, the Bible's real. It's accurate. We sometimes, whenever somebody shows me something like that, I always go back to the original language and take a look and see, because almost every single time they think they have found an error, it's because we translated a word from Hebrew or Greek or Chaldean into the, the wrong word. The Bible is real. I could give you weeks and weeks of material on this. We only had time for this order. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the history of our regiment. And 
We're going to look at some Medal of Honor winners tomorrow, too. And I'll explain tomorrow then why that is so important. If you come back here, I promise you, you will not be bored with this. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had. Lord, I just pray that your spirit continues to teach and just move upon these people. Lord, if there's somebody here who's hungering to know the truth, I pray that your spirit, Lord, will make it very, very plain to them. Lord, if there's someone here who's just wanting to, to be fed spiritually, I, I pray that you feed them. Lord, if there's someone here who really doubts any of this, I pray that your spirit will just work upon their heart. Let them see the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks.